So uh, at this point in the retreat, we like to congratulate you for still being here. This is a great success over 24 hours of ups and downs of the mind and body and heart. And the first day of retreat is often not an easy one. Some of you reported that it's been very sweet, but others, others of you have reported that it's been a lot of tiredness, or weariness, or restlessness, or agitation, and all kinds of different things going on. So um, it's, it's a lot, as you can see. Um, we say this practice is simple but not easy. You know, the main instruction is pay attention. Notice what's happening. And that's all we need to say, really, for the next five days. Pay attention. But as you can see, it's harder than it looks, harder than it sounds. The mind will do anything and everything to avoid being here, to avoid simply being present, being with ourselves. There's this uh, magazine uh, ad that I like to share at the beginning of a retreat. It's this woman levitating with a headset and a CD player. And it says, in 28 minutes you'll be meditating like a Zen monk. The ultra meditation system for transcendence peak experiences and discovering your place in the universe. <laughs> so, 28 minutes was um, short. I figured. CDs available after the end of the retreat. <laughs> and we like that. We're always looking for shortcuts, you know, ways to just leapfrog over all the difficult stuff. And for any of you who've been doing this practice for a while, you realize that there's no shortcuts. The only way out is through. So in the beginning, there's often an adjustment period of coming from our lives, which are often busy. There's just the busyness of, of getting here and then slowing down. The, the pace is, is much slower than we live. The quality of attention required is much more refined, much more intimate, much more careful. And so whatever expectations you had for this retreat, you often see them on this first day you know, when you were filling in your application or fantasizing about this retreat, you weren't thinking about the long hours of tedious mind-wandering or the aching knees or the back or the restlessness or the agitation. No, you were thinking about Spirit Rock and peace and meditation and nature and Dharma and freedom and we have a very selective memory, especially those of us who have done retreats. So often what comes up in the beginning is, is doubts. What am I doing here? Why did I sign up for this? And different anyotypes will have different uh, doubts that arise on the first day. So for a seven, and I, I'm going to use various comments I've heard about people reporting in the first day, and I'm going to just guess what number they were. So one person said, what am I doing here when I could be in Napa at a spa drinking beautiful red wine and great food and getting pampered? I guess she was a seven, I'm imagining. Why didn't I go on vacation? Why aren't I surfing? Why aren't I in Hawaii? You know, why am I looking at my navel? Or one woman said, I'd rather be at work 
it's that hard, I'd rather be at work. I'm figuring she was a three, but who knows? <laughs> or the questioning, what has this got to do with anything? What's this got to do with reality? What's this got to do with my life? We're not even allowed to study or to read. We just have to sit here and breathe. It might be a five, maybe. Or everybody's getting it but me. Everybody's really understanding it. Everyone's looking like a Buddha. So notice if you're having these thoughts, they're very common. So I'll be, I'll be, I'll be sort of giving little vignettes from, from um, how different Enneagram types might be experiencing this practice. And, and as I give these vignettes, they're stereotypes. And they, we, we, each one of us could have these experiences and thoughts and feelings. Um, even though sometimes different types will have them more than others. So in our lives, we're often used to getting what we want, and if we don't get what we want, then we try to fix it, we change it, we do something about it. On this retreat, we're invited to simply uh, meet and open to experience as it is, to practice some renunciation. There's actually a lot of renunciation happens on a retreat. We let go of control over a lot of our lives, over our food, schedule, sharing a room perhaps, um, what we do in the day. And it takes a lot of uh, courage to be here. It seems in some way very easy, but actually it's very challenging to look at ourselves, to be with ourselves without distraction. You know, we all get through the day, every day in our lives, with a lot of distraction, have you noticed? A lot of ways that we check out, we use media and newspapers or whatever it is that we use to not be with ourselves. It's hard just to be sitting with me or you, not you, you know what I mean. My favorite stories from IMS, our sister center is one day, one evening, in the middle of the night, a staff person caught a yogi in the fridge, in, in the walk-in fridge with his hand in the dates. And when he was asked what he was doing, he said, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> so we'll do a lot of things to avoid ourselves, to avoid being with our experience. It's hard to see the ways that we act out the ways that we get caught in our mind, in our reactivity, in our habits. And on retreat, when we come, we, be, we get to see, it's, I sometimes think of coming to retreat, it's like the freight train of the habits of our lives slam into a brick wall. And we get to feel them. All the different ways that we, that we think and feel and check out and react and uh, live our lives, sometimes quite unconsciously. And so it's really important, as we'll be saying uh, every day, to remind ourselves to be um, kind with ourselves. Because often what we see isn't pretty, isn't easy, isn't uh, that palatable. We see the way our mind's crazy and reactive. We see the way that we react or get hostile or aversive or resistant. So it's important to, f to really hold all of our experience with some some forgiveness, you know, this, uh, some, some quality of acceptance. Otherwise, it's just fodder for the judging mind, fodder for the critic. So this is, um, this, 
this uh, thing I'm going to read in a moment, the autobiography in five short chapters, feels very apropos uh, in this Enneagram retreat because we're partly looking at our habits, our fixations, the way that we, uh, the way that we react or act out unconsciously. So, in five short chapters, the autobiography. Chapter one, I walk down the street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I am lost, I am helpless. It isn't my fault and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault and it still takes a long time to get out. Sound familiar? Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. (laughs) So in a way, that's a wonderful metaphor for practice. We do these things, whatever it is, we check out, we fantasize, we blame, we complain, and then we start practicing mindfulness, and we still, do th- we still do those things. We see them, we see them, and we see we're doing them, and it's very painful because we know that it's not necessarily that helpful to be doing those things, but we still do them. Habits are very strong. It's why we practice. It takes a while. And at some point we go, oh, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to go down that street. And then chapter six, which we should add, particularly because the uh, fellow retreat is the path of engagement, which is how we bring our practice into the world in service, is we um, go back down the street and we fix the hole. So the good news in the practice is we can transform, we can, tr- we can change, we can see uh, the ways that we are blind or unconscious. That's the, uh, the gift of the practice. And we have the most important quality, the most important tool necessary in our, in our kit, as it were, which is this quality of mindfulness, of presence, of awareness. That this really is a fundamental uh, liberating um, aspect of our nature. That we can hold and bring this light of awareness to anything and everything. And that light of awareness itself liberates. So what I mainly want to talk about tonight is a little overview of um, Buddhist practice, a little overview of the path, um, a way of contextualizing what we're doing, and by using the Buddhist teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is his sort of foundational teaching, which really all of his teachings can be um, held within. The teaching that there's suffering, that there is unsatisfactoriness in this world, you haven't noticed. There's the cause of suffering, the cause of our unsatisfactoriness, the cause of our anguish, which is the force of grasping, desire, the wanting mind, the the mind that's in contention with reality, that's resisting and grasping after something else. And then he also said that freedom is possible. Freedom from this suffering, from this force, from these forces of mind is possible. And that there's a path leading to that unfoldment that we're doing right now. As we're practicing on retreat, we are walking 
the Eightfold Path, different ways that we, um, different things that we do, different practices, different ways of understanding that we, that we, that we cultivate to liberate. So I want to say uh, some words about uh, the first noble truth, which is the truth of uh, what the Buddha called dukkha, which literally means unsatisfactoriness, or incapable of providing lasting happiness. He often used the analogy of the, 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 bump, the wheel, like a horse and cart, and you have a horse and cart, and you have a wheel that's not quite round. If you imagine being on the, on the back of the cart and the wheel's going around, but just a little off. Every time it goes around, you feel that little uncomfortable movement. That's a little like how we experience life. It often feels okay, but it's often not quite right. It's the not quite rightness. It's just something's a little off. I'm not quite good enough, or this experience isn't quite right, or the weather's not quite how I like it, or lunch wasn't to my liking. Just the way there's a little, or there's some, some kind of existential itch that feels unanswered, or I'm not quite sure of my place in the universe. Something that the mind is always looking to, to find unsatisfactoriness, to find that it's just not quite how I want it to be. I remember I took a vacation some years ago with uh, a friend, um, and uh, she took me to this very exclusive um, uh, resort, which I'm not used to staying in, in that kind of uh, place. And so we went to Maui, and there's this very fancy, very luxurious resort, and I was thinking, wow, this is really cool. And uh, she walked into the bedroom, and the first thing she noticed was the dust on the blinds. You know, we had this beautiful room of this ocean bluff, and the ocean, the sky, and it was, I was just, you know, my sevenness was just in bliss. You know, Maui, sunshine, ocean, and she was noticing the dust on the blinds. The not quite rightness. There's something not quite okay with things as they are. I'm sort of figuring, backtracking, that she was probably a one. I didn't think about that at the time. But <clears throat> My definition of um, dukkha is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be a human, to have this open, sensitive heart, this body, this mind, and to be simply at ease, at peace. It seems like we have to work through a lot of um, stuff. It's almost like we're going against the grain of evolution to wake up, even though it's actually part of evolution to wake up. So the Buddha defines suffering in different ways. Um, classically, he would talk about um, birth being suffering, old age being suffering, sickness being suffering, death being suffering. And he also talked about it being not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from that which we love. So not getting what we want. Just think about it for a moment. How is it when you don't get what you want? Do you, are you happy and joyous and celebrate and go, oh, great, I get to work with my attachments, and my resistances. No, we go, oh, no, we contract. Oh, it's not what I want. This food isn't to my liking. This retreat hall isn't quite what I was expecting. I showed up to the retreat and I was hoping for the quietude of a single room and I get a roommate. 
and I'm a two, and I'm struggling with trying to be in my center, and here I am thinking about my roommate all the time. Losing what we have. How is it when we lose what we have? The thing I think causes the most profound suffering is we lose connection with our nature, with who we are, with our innate source, our essence, our being, beingness. And then when we lose touch with that, we lose touch with our understanding, our belief, our connection with, with that. Then we get lost, we get confused, we start looking for the source of nourishment and wholeness outside of ourselves. In somebody else, in a career, in money, in success, in fame, in where all the different places that we look for happiness. Rumi says, it's we that we are looking for. It's what we are looking for is the one that is doing the looking. We keep thinking it's outside of ourselves. And we don't turn the lens of awareness towards what is it that's looking? What is it that's searching? Maybe the source of happiness is actually right here. So one of the things that we do when we, when we start suffering is we start to personalize it. And we think, oh, I'm doing something wrong. Or I'm the only one who's suffering on this retreat. I'm the only one who has this crazy mind, this wild heart. And suffering is one of the things that actually, if we pay attention, is what connects us. Sometimes I know the places of my deepest pain is when I've actually felt the most bonded to people the most, when my heart's be most open, because the suffering and pain opens our heart. It tears our heart open sometimes. And we feel that we're not alone in this, that we're actually sharing the pain of the world. So we all experience suffering in our own unique ways. We all have, in, in our particular Enneagram types, we experience fixation in different ways that cause suffering. What this practice asks you to do is to come into a wise relationship with suffering. To come into a wise relationship. And the first part of doing that is to understand it. Usually with suffering, we don't like it, it's painful, it's difficult. So what do we do? We move away, we resist, we back off, we avoid. Ajahn Chah talks about, he says this saying, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, we run towards it. So our, our habitual stance is to avoid, is to move away. And what happens? It comes around the back and hits us from behind, or gets us another way. Or the very avoidance strategy is pain, painful itself. I remember when I was on a retreat in England, and I was on a, a month retreat, and of course, I'd signed up for this retreat thinking it would be you know, a really great retreat, and I'd be, uh, I think it was fall in England, one of my favorite times of year in England, and I had all these wonderful ideas about what the retreat would be, and of course, it was none of those things, and it was actually a really hard retreat. It was what I call a dukkha retreat, a suffering retreat. And for the first 10 days or something, I was just hating it, hating that it, the fact that it was a hard retreat. 
but I was caught in the suffering and I was caught in my resistance to it. And so I was miserable. And then after about the ninth or tenth day, I suddenly had this realization, oh, this is suffering. This is the first noble truth. This is the most fundamental teaching that the Buddha gave. Oh yes, suffering is, is real. It exists. This is how it is. And suddenly to realize that it was just suffering, I was like, oh, I can be with that. It's like embracing it with awareness. It wasn't so much a problem anymore. It was when I was fighting off, fending it, trying to do all, all of my great seven strategies to um, keep me away from pain and suffering. When I realized that they actually weren't working because they weren't actually addressing the real issue, which was, oh, there's pain, there's suffering. And when I met that, it was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't a, my happiest retreat, but it was okay. I, dropped, I was able to drop into it. So how much we suffer with any particular thing depends on our relationship to it. We usually think, well, there's objective things in the world that make me suffer. You know, if, this, if, the, if the noise is too loud, or if um, my body's hurting or in pain or is sick, or if my partner's doing certain things, or if my financial status is you know, in a certain way. But it's really not when we get, we get entranced into thinking that it's about what's around us, about what's in the world, what's in our body. And it's really not about that at all. It's about how we relate to it. Because we can see in any one thing that our relationship changes to all the time, whether it's to our partner or to the weather or to our money situation or to our health or our body. You can see it in a single sitting. Sometimes we sit and we feel some old injury, some, some chronic pain, and it's like, oh no, it's like not that again. I didn't, it was like this, I had this last retreat and I was hoping to be free of it. And this sort of fear and contraction and aversion and self-pity and blame. And, and then the next sit, there's a lot of mindfulness, there's presence, the heart's open, and we feel the same pain and we're able to embrace it. We've been able to be with it and it's like, oh, it's unpleasant, it's painful, it's difficult, but I'm not suffering around it. And the, the difference is in how we're relating to it. Viktor Frankl says, it's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. It's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it's in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, then we go to the actual suffering that is present and we open completely to it, welcome it and concentrate on it and allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom or despair and doubt and fear in order to understand them, in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So he's saying we really, it's this practice is about turning towards what's happening, even if it's difficult. So today you had a fair share of, I imagine, coming across different aspects of dukkha of the body, of sitting, sitting still for 45 minutes for 
many times today. And just seeing that having a body has its own aspect of unpleasantness, of unsatisfactoriness, that it's hard to sit still for any period of time without the body feeling comfortable. Good Housekeeping magazine said there were 84 different, different unpleasant sensations in the body. I don't know if that's definitive, but it's a lot. And if Good Housekeeping found 84, I'm sure there's more. We could do a little poll here and we could probably come up with more than that. But just to have a body, we're subject to fragility and uh, to, um, to a certain vulnerability to pain, discomfort, aches, getting older, getting sick. So how do we meet that? Do we run from it? Do we avoid it? What's the the way that we check out from the pain of our body, from the fear of experiencing pain? And again, not to understand that um, so we can judge ourselves, but to understand to see, oh, there's suffering, and then there's a suffering I add on to suffering. The Buddha called it the second dart, the second arrow. We have the, the, the first dart of an experience of, say, physical pain. And then the second dart, we, we, we add on with our thoughts. Oh, I don't like this. This shouldn't be happening. If only I'd done more yoga. If only I was a better yogi. I'm sure there's other people aren't experiencing pain. We add suffering onto suffering. We get poor fuel on the fire. So we have the suffering, that, the unsatisfactoriness that comes from having a body and the pain that comes from having a mind. You have these wonderful, amazing minds, creative, imaginative. And yet when we sit, we see, we come, we come up against the untrained mind, the mind that's all over the place, the puppy mind, the restless mind, the monkey mind. We're looking for the off switch when we sit. We're looking for the operating manual. Where, how do I work this mind that's so out of control? Who's in control? Am I in control? Is the mind in control of me? These thoughts just keep appearing and disappearing, pulling me, seducing me, entrancing me. So we can get into a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering with the mind, the thinking mind. Some studies said we, can, we think 65,000 thoughts a day, which is about one a second. It's a lot of thoughts. And if you had the idea that meditation is about not thinking, then forget it. Suffering, pain, struggle. We, we make thoughts the enemy, and then we start fighting with our thoughts and resisting them and thinking they're the problem. The thoughts aren't the problem. Again, it's our relationship to what's happening, our relationship to the thoughts. Thoughts appear and disappear. How do we relate to that? How can we be with the thinking mind? You know, as a seven, as a mental type, uh, as a head type, um, I can get into a lot of planning when I'm sitting, a lot of all the different, I'm planning the thing I'm going to do after I sit, you know, which is only walk, but where am I going to walk? Shall I walk up the hill? Maybe I can walk and hike and get my, you know, get my cardio up while I'm still being mindful walking. (laughs) How can I get the best cushion and the right posture? And, you know, a lot of planning, a lot of worrying about the, the next moment and how I can fix it. Or the, or the thoughts about, well, maybe I should be somewhere else. You know, maybe I hear, I hear Zen is the quick way to enlightenment. 
Now here it's a direct path, or the Tibetans, you know, it seems really much more interesting and exotic. You know, this, this Theravadan stuff seems very kind of dry and, and, and drab. And what am I doing here? You know, for the six, you know, they might be caught in a lot of doubting mind. Who are these people? And can I really trust what they're saying? Can I really trust their practice? Can I, can I really feel safe and comfortable here? I'm not sure. Or some fours were talking today about being uh, the way the four gets lost in longing in creating a fantasy, whether it's about a situation or a person. You know, so each of the types will, will have our own way of getting lost in our thinking mind, in our fantasies, in our, in our, in our plans, in our memories, in our, in our feeling of unworthiness or the feeling of how I can do it better. You know, one of the things that we see a lot when we sit is, is the, the papancha mind, the proliferating mind that just runs with itself. And we have one thought, leads to another thought, another thought, another thought. We can have the Vipassana romance, you know, where we start entertaining ourselves with uh, finding a, the idealized partner on the retreat. We don't know who this person is, but we like how they look, and suddenly they show up at our dining table, and then they show up in our walking space, and then they, we find that we're sitting next together in the Dharma hall, and all of a sudden this whole fantasy gets spun. Oh, maybe they like me. Maybe that's why they keep sitting at my dining table. Maybe we could get together after the retreat. And then this whole story gets spun. We're sitting trying to follow the breath, and we're, you know, we're having a honeymoon in Tuscany, and <laughs> having children. We've moved to Costa Rica, and we're off the grid. And, And then it starts to go wrong, and we think on the divorce, and how do we separate the property, and it's really messy, no, I'm not going to go there. And... Or we start to have what's called a Vipassana vendetta. Somebody, we fixate on somebody, somebody who's not doing something just how it should be. You know, maybe the ones are getting very particular about how people should be doing walking practice. And if someone isn't walking slowly enough or mindfully enough, or someone's breathing too loud, or wearing the wrong clothes, or you know how the mind can get easily triggered. Someone, you know, we, we're walking through the door and the door shuts in our face, you know, and someone's just didn't notice us, and then we have this whole story and we start hating them. I've been on retreats, long retreats, where sitting next to somebody who breathes really loud, and I just wanted to kill him. <laughs> You know, hey, may you be well, may you be happy, and may you stop breathing, you know, may you be well. <laughs> so we have to have some sense of humor about our minds. Our minds are funny things. And they'll do all kinds of things just to... Um, minds aren't very comfortable with stillness. The nature of mind, the thinking mind, is movement, is restlessness very uncomfortable at just being still because it, it feels obsolete, feels redundant in the stillness. And that's why we emphasize uh, the body so much in this practice, because we're so lost upstairs, we're so lost in our thoughts, in our coconut. So we practice coming back to our breath, to our body, to our, to our footsteps, to our legs, to our feet, to our center. 
So we can ground our awareness in the physical present. The, 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 the body is always in the present. The senses are always in the present. So when we, with our physical experience, we're more likely to be connected to this moment. So the suffering and then there's the cause of suffering. And both the Enneagram and the Dharma have um, different and useful ways of talking about how we create suffering. And really where they unify is the understanding of how we create fixation, how we misperceive reality, how we misperceive what's true, how we misperceive our true nature or an aspect of our true nature, and then create um, as a compensation or reaction to that, we develop habits fixations, which we hope will um, sort of uh, heal or make better of the fundamental misperception, uh, the fundamental suffering. So from a Buddhist perspective, the way that we, we um, uh, misperceive uh, or misunderstand, all, all of our suffering comes from a fundamental delusion. So the Buddha talked about the cause of suffering being the force of grasping, of desire, of wanting. Of, uh, it's a fundamental way that we meet experience and are unable to be with it just as it is. We're unable to accept it and, and be at ease with it. Instead, we either long for something else, we resist what's happening, we look outside of ourselves, we think that we, we can't be complete in this moment without having some other experience or without changing this experience or changing ourselves, changing somebody else. And as you know, these desires that come up, the grasping, the wanting mind uh, is endless. How many desires have you had today? How many different things have you been wanting to be different? We should start counting them. Just noticing how many in a day, in a single meditation. Wanting the breath to be slightly different, wanting our body to be a little different, wanting our mind to be quieter, wanting the room to be more spacious, wanting the weather to be nicer. It just goes on and on and on. Desires are endless. Desires itself, themselves aren't the problem. It's our attachment. It's our fixating on a particular desire. The attachment to wanting something to happen. That's the cause of suffering. That's the bind. And for each of us, it's different. For each Enneagram type, it's different. The way that we grasp, the way that we fixate, the way that we think happiness will be provided. For myself, it's, you know, the way I fixate is through, is, is through um, the sort of lust for experience, the craving for different experiences, even on a retreat. It'll be, well, maybe I should sit outside. Maybe I should meditate by the deer and the turkeys. That will be, be how I can make myself happy. You know, for the three, it might be the desire to, to, be, to be seen in a certain way as they're walking, doing walking meditation across the playa down there, to be seen in a way that's, that's really congruent to how they want to be seen. For a nine, they might come in a retreat and just to be to wanting to really connect with a sense of peacefulness not wanting anything that gets in the way of that, any obstruction. 
So notice what it is for you. Notice it. Notice how your particular enneagram type uh, moves through the force of desire. Notice how you might use this force of desire to avoid a particular deficiency, to avoid some aspect of yourself, some way that you fantasize, daydream. And the Dharma teachings ask us to pay attention to desire because unchecked desire just leads to endless desire. Have you noticed? We, get, we, you know, we have this desire for something, we get it. And it's great, it lasts for a few moments, and then we want something else. We get the perfect cappuccino in the morning, and then we have that, and it's like, oh, now I want the perfect breakfast. And then we go after that, and then the perfect hike, and then the perfect, and so it just goes on and on and on. That's how we live, it's the the wheel of samsara. I remember once I was working uh, at a client who, uh, a couple of clients in a hedge fund, and one, one, of the, one of my clients was a trader. And I walked into the office one day and there was a lot of excitement and buzz in the office. And I had heard that uh, they just made, he just made a trade that made $50 million in that day. And so it was, everyone was really happy and excited. And, and I came to see him um, later that day and he was really stressed out and looked really kind of unhappy. And I was kind of surprised. He just made $50 million for the company. I figured he'd be, you know, pretty happy. That was his job. And so we started getting to discussion. I said, what's going on? He said, well, you know, I knew I should have bought it earlier and I knew I should have sold the stock later and I could have made an extra 10, 15 million. And he was suffering. It wasn't enough that that the wanting mind is never satisfied, even with $50 million. And it's not surprising, you know, we live in this culture that so uh, relentlessly promotes wanting mind, desiring mind. Get this, buy this, have this, consume this, get this for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, and you'll be happy. Right? That's what we've, that's what we, it's part of our DNA uh, growing up in, in this culture. So we have to have some compassion, some spaciousness, some some tolerance, some, some forgiveness for the fact that we're, we're you know, not just we're, we're hardwired that way, but the culture feeds on that. So we, we, we're told to keep looking outside of ourselves for happiness. This is from Smart Food Popcorn. Smart Food Popcorn, is it really smart to let yourself get carried away by a snack, to find yourself longing for it long before lunch? to be thinking about it at three in the afternoon or to be needing it during the nightly news. Of course it is. After all, it's smart food popcorn we're talking about here. So why even try to resist the urge? You know you want it, you know how to get it. Now go out there and be smart about it. You know, that's just one thing amongst, you know, a hundred things I could pull out that, you know, from cat food that has a little, kitty cat, and, it, and on the, underneath the kitty cat says, crave whiskers. <laughs> As if cats could read. <laughs> we, 
when you're caught in the wanting mind, notice, notice the belief system that's underneath it. Notice what's fueling it. The story, oh, if I get this, I'll be happy. If I achieve this, I'll feel peaceful. If I obtain that, I'll be satisfied or I'll, be, I'll get the status or the recognition or whatever it is. Notice the fuel that's, that's, that's behind it, that's driving it. And when desire is happening, in terms of mindfulness practice, notice what it's like in the body. I'll let you know, so when desire is there, when wanting, when grasping, when craving is there, feel it, notice what it's like. No matter how pleasant the thing we're wanting, it actually doesn't feel that pleasant to be wanting something because we're in separation. We're in the sense of deficiency, a sense of lack, sense of incompleteness. We're postponing our happiness for, for the future, for some future moment of getting what we want. So notice the, the, uh, the contraction in the belly, you know, or the, the tightness in the chest, the sense of feeling separate. It's painful. And we can also watch all these endless desires come and go, come and go. We, we can see that we don't actually have to act out and get everything that we want. That we can just see, oh, it's just the mind creating this ever-creative fountain of desire. And we can see them, they come, we can let them go. And find peace, the peace of cessation the Buddha talked about. And the other side of grasping is aversion. Where we fundamentally resist what's happening in any moment. We don't like it, it's unpleasant, so there's a, there's a recoiling. We either, we either move against what it is, with sort of anger or irritation, frustration, resistance, or we check out, we disappear, we avoid, we, um, we uh, go into bypassing or escaping or sleep and sleepiness. I live with a nine, I'm really getting to know how that aspect of the Enneagram can go to sleep. Things aren't pleasant, things are difficult, there's conflict. It's like, oh, suddenly the field gets really cloudy and there's a sort of a sleepiness in the air and, and they've checked out and they've gone because it's gotten a little unpleasant. Get to see my own, I get, to see, I get reflected back my own ways that I, that I go asleep and check out. So one way you can notice if you're in the aversive mind is that the story's running, if only, if only, if only they serve coffee here in the morning, you know, I'd be really, I'd be really awake in the day, you know, if only they, you know, if only they kept the noise down out there, all that door banging and I'd be, you know, I'd be really like in blissful meditation. If only I'd brought my nice bench that I like to sit on at home, or if only I'd, da, 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 if they only they did this on the retreat or that on the retreat, I'd be happy. So, what's great about life is that it's always providing endless opportunities for us to practice. Because life is never exactly how we want it. So we always have a nice little rub to work against. If it was too good, we wouldn't practice. We would just kind of hang out and chill out and kind of go to sleep. But there's enough pleasantness and unpleasantness in this life to keep us on our edge. You know, to keep us vigilant, keep us working in a way. 
So one quick story um, that highlights this um, quality of aversion. I, I got to work with this a lot when I was practicing in India. Uh, India is not quite as cozy and comfortable as sitting in this zendo here. It's you know no carpets and barely any electricity and very loud and uncomfortable and lots of mosquitoes and bugs and um, smells and it's great. It's a wonderful place to practice. <laughs> I highly recommend it. <laughs> you get to work, you get to practice with a lot of aversion, a lot of resistance to not getting what you want. You know, sleeping on straw mats on the floor, lots of rats running around and um, it's great. So one particular year I was in this monastery and um, some Bodhgaya and uh, this um, travel agent set out, set, set, um, set the little stall outside the monastery because the, the, the village had spread outside um, along the road where the, the monastery used to be outside of the village and then the, the sprawl spread around the, the monastery. And they had this very loud recording of, um, of an ad that they were playing to all the local pilgrims who would walk past in, in the morning and the evening, all the Tibetan pilgrims, of their advertising bus tickets to all around India. And they stick the, the loudspeaker on the top of their little um, shop and play all day so people attract, you know, attracts customers. And, and the tape was um, short, it was like two minutes long. And it started with this very enticing, hello, 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 hello. And then you'd hear some words in Hindi. And then you'd hear um, Bombay, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Delhi, Varanasi, Calcutta. And then a few more words in Hindi. And then it would rewind. Hello, 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 hello. Calcutta, Bombay, Delhi. Rewind. Hello, 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 hello. And of course, the hello was perfectly pitched to, like you get, every time it would come, you go, oh, yes, something? <laughs> Except it got really tiring after, you know, this was like day two of a 20 day retreat. It was a concrete room, concrete everything, and it was just bouncing off the walls, and my mind was bouncing off the walls. <laughs> we weren't allowed to leave the monastery, so we couldn't practice, you know, nonviolent direct action. <laughs> So we just had to sit, you know, breathing, sitting, hearing, hearing, hating, 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 <laughs> homicide, shut up, hating, hating, <laughs> torture. And it was torture for a while. It was like, oh my God, 20 days of this. It's like, and then we'd pray for Indian electricity to go out, which it does <laughs> frequently. And, um, but over the days, you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about being in India is um, it, it sort of grinds the mind down in a way that, in a healthy way, that it, it stops resisting, it stops fighting, it stops trying to um, control the environment because it knows it eventually works it out. It can't. It has to let go. It encourages this beautiful letting go. And then it just becomes sound. The hello, 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 Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, just became sound. It wasn't pleasant or unpleasant. It was actually it became quite neutral and sometimes humorous. You could see the mind wanting to make a story, and then and just, it would just let it go. And there would be peace. And what was, what was profound about that experience was that it made me understand that we don't have to change the external world stimulus 
We don't have to get rid of the thing that we think is making us unhappy. We just have to work with the reactivity in our minds. That's what this practice is about. That's what allows freedom to, to flourish. So noticing the things that, that make you aversive here, noticing whether they're particular to you, noticing if they might be reflective of your Enneagram type. So what's powerful about this practice is we get to learn, we get to see that we, we, instead of running, we show up to what's happening, whether it's the pain in our body, the reactivity in our mind, and we see that we can actually find peace in any moment when we stop resisting, when we stop reacting, when we stop believing the story of our mind, the thinking happiness is dependent on something happening outside of ourselves. This is from the Sagadada. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it's acceptable, it's pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So as I said, pay attention through the days, what are you aversive to? You know, as a seven, it might be aversive to uh, the lack of variation in, this, in the schedule. It's like the same schedule every day. Oh my God, I'm feeling confined. I have to be in this room all day. For one, there might not be quite enough order. There might be not, might enough structure. And for five, there might be not enough space, not enough room, not enough personal time. So sensing what it is for you that, that creates or triggers aversion. So there's, a, there's the, the suffering, there's a cause of suffering, and the Buddha said there's also freedom from suffering. Freedom from fixation. Freedom from these deeply ingrained habits of mind. Freedom from this delusion that we think we're incomplete. Freedom that we think that we're not, uh, we don't have the capacity to be free. So this really is the good news of the practice, is you know, the Buddha, by his example and by all the people who followed him, after the last two and a half thousand years, the tradition is full of wonderful stories, living examples of people waking up, waking up from suffering. The Buddha said, whoever in the world overcomes craving, so hard to transcend, will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So the Buddha talks about the end of suffering being the end of the path, but we can also talk about it in terms of moments. Ajahn Buddhadasa, a wonderful Thai forest master, talked about there being moments of nirvana, moments of freedom, no moments of peace where we're not 
clinging or grasping or resisting in any moment. In any moment when that's happening, there's peace, there's ease. Dear friend of mine told me this uh, beautiful story when she was on retreat. And uh, she was, um, she's a nine, and uh, she was taking a walk out uh, the back here. It was a beautiful day, so she went to sit in the sun and just sort of rest in that peacefulness of the, the little, little grove back there of bay trees. And she found a little shaft of light, and she sat down, and then she saw this beautiful feather, and she thought, oh, this is a sign. You know, there's, there's a feather, and it's beautiful, and it's all harmony, and I'm at peace, and this is just what I wanted for the retreat. And then she noticed next to the feather was a bird, and it was dead. And it wasn't what she'd come out to sit with. You know, it had maggots on, it was, craw- it was all kind of deformed, and you know, it was ugly and rotting. And, and, and she said, for a nine, that wasn't a great thing to hang out with. You know, it's not with the kind of peaceful and sweet, harmonious, tranquil nature thing that she wanted. But you know, she'd been practicing for many days, and so she just sat with it. And she, she, began to see, she began to sort of see through her reactivity, see through the resistance and the, and the suffering in that moment. And she began to see that you know, she was seeing the bird from the perspective of, of the maggots and the worms that they were feeding that were just regenerating and recycling. And there's just the, the, the natural cycles of the earth. And she saw the beauty in the decay and the transformation. And so she was able to drop through with a usual reactive resistance to something being ugly and, 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 and sort of obtrusive to something quite sweet and profound. The Zen patriarch put it this way, he said, the great way, this path, this dharma that we're doing, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. The great way is not difficult for those not attached to their preferences. Byron Katie, wonderful, teaches, talks about loving what is, loving what is as it is. And what happens when we do this, when we meet experience as it is without the habitual reactivity of the mind, what's, the, what's left, what remains is peace. The smile, the radiance, the tranquility of these Buddhas is the peace that's left when we're no longer caught in the fires, the burning. This freedom from suffering also arises when we see, when we understand the truth of who we are. It's really what allows the letting go to happen, when we see our true nature. When we see through the misperceptions, the way that we fixate, the way that we don't see the fullness of our being, And I'll close with this quote from the Buddha. The Buddha talked about uh, the mind being pure and radiant, but being visited by uh, visiting habitual tendencies of mind. He said, the mind is innately pure and radiant, naturally open, free, but visited by habits of mind that obscure that cloudy, that obscure that radiance. That's what our practice is, learning to see what obscures the truth of who we are, learning to understand the fixations as we're doing here on this retreat through the Enneagram, 
learning to see that's not who we are, that those patterns aren't what bring peace and, peace and well-being. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.